Uh, Would you please stand with me? Take your Bible to Romans chapter 16. Um, I'm going to read the entire paragraph in Romans 16, beginning in verse 17. We started looking at it last week, and we'll continue it today. Uh, Follow along as I read the word of the Lord. Romans 16, verse 17 says this. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason, Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quirtus, greets you. Uh, You can be seated this morning, and children who are headed off to Children's Church can be dismissed. Um, I want to take a moment to welcome folks who are joining us uh, at home. I I hope that, uh, that we're accessible uh, in home this morning. I'm thankful that over the last three or four weeks, uh, some people in church have made really great improvements in making sure that you could tune in to this service from home if you needed to. It was, there was a frustrating couple of months where we weren't offering that. And as a, as a disciple maker, knowing that there were some people who, who needed to be at home and couldn't tune into the service, it was very frustrating to me. So I personally am thankful for those who have invested in uh, making sure that you can join us this morning from home. I wonder if you would think with me, speaking of disciple-making, if, if you had penned this letter, the revelation of the righteousness of God, to a group of people that you cared for deeply in the faith, how would you punctuate all of that? How would you land all of that transcendent doxology the glory of God in Christ. How would you conclude? That's what we're studying, is Paul's conclusion. He is giving us his finishing thoughts. And I think that there is a profound statement that points to a summary of the book of Romans and the power of the gospel that was introduced back in Romans 1. And it is found in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's a well-written, well-formatted letter. He has, in the beginning, his introduction, his sort of thesis statement. You've heard me say dozens of times, I think it's Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power. It's the only thing that does the thing that we need. It's exclusive efficiency unto salvation to everyone who believes. 
For in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. In this gospel revealed, we conclude that there is no fault to be had, no imperfection to be identified in God. He starts with that thesis statement, and I think as much as any concluding statement, he punctuates it, he summarizes it, his conclusion is, and that righteous God, whose power to save is the gospel, will soon crush Satan under your feet. I think there's a lot of profound elements in that. Not only that God is going to have his final victory, nothing can stay his hand, but that Satan will be crushed under our feet. That required a little extra study. In this text, the apostle refers to two things that are imperative in the final demise of evil. Obedience and grace. You see the first one in verse 19. He says, wow, people know about how obedient you are. But then he finishes verse 20 with the God of grace. All the grace of God that is yours in Christ Jesus will keep you and sustain you. So our obedience to the truth protects us from the false Christ-less teachers we looked at last time. And even now, we are sure that Satan is being crushed because God's grace is sustaining us and keeping his promise to the end. So the title is Obedience and Grace, God Crushing Satan Under Our Feet. For 11 chapters in Romans, it was explained to us how God, before the foundation of the world, had decreed his plan of salvation to definitely come to pass. That's what we're reading in Romans. How God's plan of salvation is coming to fruition. And then, in the most recent five chapters, from chapter 12 to 16, we've been seeing how our lives are affected and how we apply that. Give me just a minute to summarize, okay? So, from chapters 12 through 16, how would we summarize what we've been studying? You you remember... At the transition, I shared with you how many imperatives there are in chapters 12 through 16, parts of speech in Greek that tell us we have some instruction. An imperative says, Christian, you should do this. An indicative says, look at what God has done. But an imperative says, Christian, you should do this. So chapters 12 through 16 are are really heavy on the indicative side. I'm sorry, the imperative side, where 1 through 11 were really heavy on the indicative. So, Listen to some of the things we are told to do. Right off the bat, when it comes to Christian application of the gospel, chapter 12, verse 1, worship the king. We continued to move through conversation and instruction on the trademarks of a true Christian. What does a true Christian character look like? Our orientation next to the kingdom of Christ and how that orientation to the kingdom of Christ affects our orientation to the kingdoms of men. Next, how to delight so deeply. This is how I would summarize Romans 14 and 15. How to delight so deeply 
in the revelation of God's truth that secondary issues don't pull us apart. That's what summarized that. That's, that is a joyful statement to me. How does a church of people who disagree about some things, and we do, how do we stay together? By delighting so deeply in the revelation of who God is that we can see clearly those other things are just our preferences. And then, as we've walked through chapter 16, we've been reminded that we as Christians should learn to value God's gift of gospel community. Do you really value God's providence of being together with other Christians in fellowship, in life, like this, the church? Okay, so for our sermon now, as we're getting to these concluding thoughts, I want to share two things with you. First, the obedience of the church. The obedience of the church is not always really simple. Because if we're not really clear, we can misemphasize the burden of proof, if I can say it that way. We can, we can miscommunicate what is the command and what is the confidence that we have from obedience. And then secondly, the God of peace and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first one, the obedience of the church. Verse 19, Romans 16, 19 says this, your obedience is known to all. So he just gets done teaching them about false teachers, being careful. There are some people who would like to diminish Christ and say things that flatter you and your sense of accomplishment, like you can do it. The obstacle course in the parking lot, then you see it, I hope it didn't take up too many parking spots this morning. The obstacle course that you can run, we believe in you, you're really good at Christianity. Oh, thank you for saying so. All right, you see the flattery that promotes you and a little less Christ. But he says, that's not the case with you, the church in Rome. Your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But he, he doesn't assume to undo verses 17 and 18 by saying, so everything's fine now. But he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul's so thankful when he sees Christians in obedience. He has kind of this pithy way of putting it. Paul counseled the Roman believers to be well-versed in what was good and innocent as it regards what is evil. Jesus, I think, said something similar to that. Pastor Will mentioned it on Wednesday night, preaching through the the, that, that horrible scene of Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah. Oh, talk about not being innocent of what's evil. There wasn't a character in that story who had admirable behavior. And he referenced this verse, Matthew 10, 16, where Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. I think Paul's saying some, something similar to that. It is not, listen closely, it is not God's intention for his people to have participated in some evil so that you'll understand it better and be able to avoid it. This is not a call to have familiarity with evil, to be intimate with evil, 
This is a call to understand the difference between what is good and what is evil. Paul had earlier told, or later told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 to flee the evil desire of youth. One commentary sums this up. And it says, too good to be deceived, too wise to be deceived. Too good to be deceived and too wise to be deceived. It's undeniable that there is an active presence of evil. One of the mistakes we could make is by assuming that evil is not present. There absolutely is an active presence of evil at war against the church even now. True? There is an active presence of evil at war against the church. We could say much about how we might quickly identify the evil. There it is, there it is, there it is, you know. Uh, it's in that media outlet. It's in, it's in that blogger. It's, it's in that podcast. It's in that political party. We, we could do that, right? We could, oh yeah, you don't need to tell me about evil. I, I, I've watched the news, I know. Okay, listen, I would just say pastorally, we have to be careful not to assume that all that we experience is an external problem with an internal solution. Be careful, okay, friends? This isn't simply an external problem that the church can circle the wagons and solve. You and I, we have an internal problem that requires an external solution that is Jesus Christ. So evil is more present than we might be glad to admit. We've already already studied that. Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of sinning? Okay, I want you to be careful. I want you to understand obedience, but please be innocent as it relates to evil because evil is a reality. Romans 12, 17. This is pronounced. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood there on the sand of the sea. That's a reminder that there really is force for evil that the church has to be aware of. Obedience is a central concept. Be obedient. This church is obedient. It's a central concept in Romans. Okay, take your Bibles. Go back to Romans 1.5. Go back to Romans 1.5. Because, let me just explain to you why I think in the next 10 minutes we have to give some pretty cautious instruction about church obedience. The book of Romans is about the good news of Jesus Christ. That what we couldn't do, Christ did in our place. We couldn't live sinlessly. We couldn't keep the commands. Christ did it in our place. That's good news. How do we as a church interact with the command for obedience in the presence of dependence on Christ? You see the tension? I hope, I hope you see the tension. There is a real tension for a teacher to be careful 
to not say, all right, Jesus, Jesus did some amazing stuff, and because he did, you should clean yourself up a little bit. You should be like some characters in the Bible were. Like, you should dare to be a Daniel. You know, that's just too easy. Don't do that. Don't do that. You got some giants in your life? You need to conquer those like David. Don't do that either. That is not the point of the narratives of Daniel or David. And so you have to be careful because it's subtle. And honestly, it makes for good preaching to tell people to dare to be Daniels. But Romans is all about look to Christ. Depend in Christ. Take his yoke. Okay. But now, how does the church talk about obedience? Let's go back to Romans 1, verse 5. Because obedience is not omitted from the gospel. Paul says this when talking about his ministry of disciple-making as an apostle. He says this, Romans 1, 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. I am an apostle. To do gospel ministry to bring about obedience of faith. Look ahead to Romans 6, 1. Does the complete sufficiency of Christ to save us mean that we can dabble in disobedience and then just lean on faith or grace to save us? Romans 6, 1. We've already studied this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might obey, walk in newness of life. Robert Mounts says it this way. This is a somewhat lengthy quote, so just engage with me. I I think this is helpful for you to hear. It was helpful for me as I read it, but it might be harder to hear, so listen carefully. He says this. Biblical faith is not some mild assent to a collection of ethical rules. Biblical faith is not some mild agreement with a list of ethical rules but an active identity of the life we have in Christ. Obedience is the true measure of our faith. Which, if I step away from the quote, is what James is all about. He continues, Faith and obedience go inextricably together inseparably together. Faith and obedience. Only in obedience is there faith. For faith is not emotional acceptance. Our faith is active response. End quote. Apart from that ongoing transformation, there is not real faith. There's no obedience at all apart from faith. Uh, Go back to Romans 3 again. Go back to Romans 3. 
and look at verse 12. Would you be reminded there that there is no obedience apart from Christian faith, apart from the gift of the Spirit of God, of faith and grace, there is no obedience. That truth is repeated in Hebrews 8. I'm sorry, it's Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. I think I have a minute. Don't we confess that anything done independent of God's new birth in us, of God's regeneration of us, don't we confess that anything apart from that, even while labeled culturally good, is still sin? Don't we confess that our righteousness is filthy rags? Don't we confess that some who are apart from Christ do things that are in accord with God's created design? Yes, Romans 3. But, but don't we also confess that even when we are not held to the measure of the law, before there was law, we still stood condemned by very nature of who we are. Without faith. There's not truly obedience. There's something else. There's a morality. There's a goodness, a nicety. But not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fruit that the Spirit of God produces. And Paul's calling it commendable obedience. Our obedience is not what crushes Satan. That's helpful. What if you were going into spiritual warfare with the devil? And I stood here today and said, Okay, church, as long as you do good and not bad, we're going to win the fight against Satan. You would say, Oh, this odds are not good. Right? You would say that. If we're honest, we would say, We're not going to make it. And it's true, we wouldn't. Our obedience is not what crushes Satan. It does not mean that the obedience of faith is not proof that victory is coming. The blood of Christ has already ransomed a people for God. Okay, the obedience of the church. Let's talk next because you can't separate them. I can't teach a whole sermon about the obedience of the church and not preach, at least verse 20, the grace of God in Christ Jesus, okay? So let's get into verse 20. The God of peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we're reminded right away, it's easy to see, it's not your obedience that crushes Satan, it's the God of peace who crushes Satan. Seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. A way Paul often ends his instruction to churches. This is, this is a prophetic prayer. 
This isn't Paul saying, okay, God, will you, will you, will you have the victory? This is a prophetic prayer. He's saying, because you've promised it, I'm announcing it. I'm praying it would happen quickly. Paul speaks of God as the God of peace. He used that same term in 15. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's vivid, right? However, let me just take a minute to explain the shalom of the Bible. Uh, our, our reference to peace uh, is very Greek. Uh, when we think peace, we, we think in the negative expression. So when we say peace, we're talking about the absence of something. The term shalom, the Hebrew reference to peace, is the conclusion of something active. Okay, So I hope that's clear. I think it's helpful. When we use the word peace, we're referring to what's not happening at the moment, conflict or war. But the Hebrew reference to shalom or peace is not the absence of conflict, but it is the conclusion of that conflict. It's, it's an expression of saying something is done that brings back into oneness. So there's a unity. There's still a reference to peace or unity, but it's not a reference to peace without conflict. So God, the God of peace, is not operating without conflict. He's a victor. God conquers sin and death in Christ. One feature of that wholeness is overcoming evil. So Paul can speak of the God of peace having warred with the evil one. Not praying that God will defeat evil, but prophesying God is defeating evil. Uh, You know, in the Bible, there's a couple of expressions. They're called already but not yet. You know what that is? Already but not yet. There's a couple of them. There's one in Ephesians that says, we who are in Christ are already seated at the right hand of God the Father. But not yet. But already. Both are entirely true. This is an already but not yet. God will win. And he already has. And he certainly will. The God of peace crushes. It's the God of peace who crushes. I think it's a vivid metaphor, but I think it it really helps to take your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. God's complete triumph for those who are in Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, let's start reading in verse 5. Hebrews 2, 5 says this. For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come. Of which we're speaking. He says later, what is man that you're mindful of him? And then he gives this quote. Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Keep reading. Now, in putting everything in subjection under his feet, he left nothing outside of his control. Do 
forgive me for not remembering who it was that I was speaking with. It was one of you who was reading through Isaiah. Oh, no, Job. Uh, Job, and you were commenting about how thankful you were to see that God controls the lightning strikes. Forgive me for forgetting who that was I was speaking with. But I was, that was true. I was encouraged by that. God controls the lightning strikes. That's what's said here. Putting everything in subjection, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So it already is, but it's not yet. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That is, make no mistake, we're speaking about Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the, suffer- because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Putting everything in subjection to Christ. We don't completely see it yet, but it is still true. Now, when it comes to God crushing Satan under our feet, in the context of grace, that's a repeating theme in the Bible. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You have this evil enemy who shows up in the garden attempting to steal away the worship of God. And in that context of God coming to the garden and pronouncing judgment on sinners, in Genesis 3.15, he says, but I will crush Satan under the foot of Jesus. Genesis 3.15, the introduction to the good news. Now, it's tempting to say, oh, yeah, that's going to be great. And, and right now, pastors are going to start preaching a little bit of prophecy, and we're going to start talking about when Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years and then ultimately thrown forever into hell. And I'm not. We could. That'd be fun. But it's not Romans 16. There's nothing about Romans 16.20 that tells us that this is only fulfilled in the end. And so we have to be careful not to jump to the end. He's writing to a church saying it's happening. It has and will and is happening. So I don't think, church, that we have to see our blessing of being protected by the grace of God as something that doesn't happen until heaven. Look at Romans 6 again. But this time, verse 17. Now we're, we're jumping around a little bit. But it's because I want you to see that what he's finishing with isn't some random nice thought. It's what had been revealed. It's the doctrinal truth of the gospel that we've been studying. So in Romans six seventeen, he says this. Thanks be to God. You who once were slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to a standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, now becoming slaves to righteousness. That alone is a present expression of God's victory over evil, Satan. Look ahead, please, again to Romans 8, verse 35. Is victory 
something that we can be confident of. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What about all this tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? I mean, look around. Christians are being martyred this morning. No, verse 37. And all these things, we remain more than conquerors through him who loved us. God is and will crush Satan under our feet. I want to take you to one more. The apostle who wrote this shared his own personal testimony with a king named Agrippa. Go to Acts 26. Go to Acts 26. Listen to how Paul told the story about God's victory. Acts 26, verse 15. Verse 15 says this. When he's testifying to King Agrippa, he's he's been arrested. He's basically telling the story of his own conversion on the road um, to Damascus. And he says this. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this reason, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I appear to you. Deliver you, verse 17, from your people and from Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul says to King Agrippa, I was converted and told what to do. And if we were to summarize what Paul just said, I was told to go preach to people that those who were in Christ we're going to have ultimate victory. They would be transformed from darkness to light, out from the power of Satan to fellowship with God. There would be forgiveness, and they would join ultimately with all those who believed in Christ in eternal life. And he says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. From today, as already, Satan is being defeated. Even under our feet, we could say, God is proving Satan's defeat. As the church is being brought in function from death to life. But from this day until the absolute completion of Satan's crushing, we are going to get a lot of things wrong. We're going to struggle to be faithful. There's going to be reasons for us to lament, to grieve our sinning. As we continue to take more and more delight in the God of our salvation, our offenses against Him grow increasingly grievous to our soul. And however long the Lord gives us to walk in that reality, we are going to need 
grace to sustain us. I want to say to you repeatedly, maybe, maybe every occasion we get together, I want to say to you, the same grace that saves you is the very grace you depend on to sustain you. And so all this conversation about victory cannot be real without future grace. The sin you commit tomorrow could undo all your confidence that you participate in defeating evil if it weren't for grace. Don't turn there. I feel like I've asked you to turn a lot today. Take a break and just listen to John 17. John 17 is that high priestly prayer of Jesus. I love it because Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is walking across Jerusalem and he's praying for you. Isn't that amazing? I like that. John 17, 15, he says this. He's praying to the Father. And he says, Father, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. I'm praying for them that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just like I'm not of the world. So, in verse 17, sanctify them in truth, because the word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I commit myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I'm not asking for just these that are walking across town with me. I'm also asking for those who will believe in me because of what they teach. See that? That's you and I being descendants of apostolic instruction. I talked about that a little bit last week. Our place in doctrinal history, our place in Christian creed. Jesus prayed that, that we would be descendants of apostolic teaching. And he's praying for us. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you they may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I'm not asking you to take them away. Jesus doesn't pray for us to just vanish. Just go into heaven, be gone. Your eternity is secure. He doesn't pray that. He prays that we would be kept from being overcome by the evil one. And by the way, when it comes to conversation about evil and Satan, Rest assured, Satan is working hard to overcome. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the Bible tells us that he is the accuser standing before the throne of God every day and every night pointing out your unworthiness. Isn't that powerful? That's powerful. Um, we sang this morning... Two things I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. Would you picture the scene with me? The accuser, the fallen angel, Lucifer, standing right now in front of God's throne saying, you don't deserve favor. You are unfit to be called the bride of Christ. You're guilty of sin 
before grace and even now. So much worse, having been released from the bondage of sin, alive, awake, having a heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, still sinning. And if I'm observing that scene, I don't have an argument. I don't have a defense. Come on. I've not done too much. I can't bring myself to even suggest that. I would have to look at the throne and say, he's not wrong. I can only be kept here by your grace. And that will be true Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Obedience, yeah. But grace, for sure. And, and the fruit of repentance that the very Spirit of God is producing in me is amazing. The, the fact that the fact that I can be brought from a servitude to sin to, to being the righteousness of God in Christ, the, the, very, the very covering of Jesus' righteousness being placed on me, I mean, that's amazing. The fact that the Spirit of God could produce obedience in me at all. But I'm going to have a lot of days between now and Satan's last crushing where I'm going to need grace. It's the only way I'll survive. So church, I just want to say, as I think about the way Paul is punctuating this, I think about the will of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians, the will of God is your sanctification. It's for your obedience to be more obvious tomorrow than it was yesterday. You know that? That is God's will for your life. For your obedience to the gospel of Christ to be more obvious on Monday than it was on Saturday. That's what God wants. A lot of Christians are like, I don't don't know the will of God for this or that. (laughs) It's just really clear in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians. The will of God is your sanctification. The will of God in 1 Peter is that we as a church would have a sort of testimony. You could say the word reputation. That we as a church would have a reputation that is consistent with our message. It's the will of God. It's obedience. That our, that our, that our living would be so consistent with our proclamation of the gospel that when people who are enemies of God want to say evil about us, they can't. The will of God is that in the end, when the final destruction of evil comes, none of God's people will be destroyed. 2 Peter chapter 3. But that we will see the conquering God of peace crush Satan finally forever. All this talk about 
the power of the gospel, the righteousness of God. How do we want to conclude that? How do we want to punctuate that? The same God who told us he would save sinners by his own sacrifice in Christ is definitely going to do it. That's, that's kind of Paul's punctuation. There is an already, but not yet. However, none of those who belong to Christ will be lost. So to finish, the verse that comes to my mind as I read that and I share it with you is a verse that usually I reference as I'm standing next to a hole in the ground at a cemetery. Last night, we were watching a superhero movie. And there's a, there's a scene in the movie where one of the superhero's mother dies. And you know, it's a movie. And you know, you know the scene, right? Like, oh, take my hand. This is my last breath. And one of the kids, it was either Drew or Emma, looked at me and said, does it really look like that when people die? And I responded very quickly. I said, a lot of people die around me. That's the way I said it. On purpose. I said, you know, I've seen a lot of people die. I said, it's not like that. It really isn't like that. Maybe you don't know that. It's not like that. There's no gasping for breath. There's a lot of medication, and there's a lot of restfulness. And the doctors don't rush in the room. They knew before. And inevitably, when you walk with people through the loss of a loved one, you're asked to do a funeral or a graveside service. And a lot of times, when I'm standing in that cemetery with the family of a Christian brother or sister, my mind goes to 1 Corinthians 15. And as we talk about this already but not yet, the power of the gospel won't be stopped. Satan, evil, will be crushed under our feet. I want to share with you 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But Emmanuel, right now, let's give thanks to God. Who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. So, what does our thankfulness look like? Like Right now, as we're sitting here and the Spirit of God is prompting all sorts of rhythms of worship. We give thanks to God. What does it look like? This. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, let you and I be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, all of our function, all of our zeal for righteousness, all of our hope deferred is not in vain. You can live in this life like a pilgrim who has no appetite for momentary pleasure and not feel like you're missing anything. 
You can live with hope deferred. Because as our obedience testifies, grace will sustain us. And the God of peace is going to crush evil forever. And we will live with the Lord endlessly. Our labor isn't in vain. Let's pray. Lord Father, these promises sustain us. Uh, Laboring, persevering, growing in joy, lamenting the curse can exhaust us because we are weak and feeble. We are creatures of dust. Our faith is a process. We're growing. And your word intervenes and fortifies our faith again this morning. And I pray that as Emmanuel gives thanks to you, that we would persevere with delight that our hope is not in this life only, but that there is resurrection to eternal life. That our very obedience, that the, the spiritual fruit of growing sanctification is evidence that you are already and still to come crushing evil. And as we walk, we'll have doubt because our sinning will seem like fuel for the accuser before the throne to point out that we're unworthy. And so, Father, cause our joy and our delighting to be sustained by the reality of your ongoing grace in Christ. We pray to you, Lord, Father, in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of the church said, Amen. Amen.